Welcome to Guys Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher, and today uh, we got on the program Dr. Uh, Dr. John Fisher. Welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going? I, I, I stop a minute, make sure I got my title right. Is it doctor, professor, some sort of like, I don't know Ooh, what else there is. I'm not a professor. So. <laughs> you could be a professor. That could happen. Yeah. And so today uh, we are going to be talking about Augustine's conception about time. And it should be a fairly objective conversation because when you're discussing someone else's views, there is a standard. And so um, you could probably have pretty fruitful conversations with even like Calvinists and uh, typical Arminians on what someone historically believed because uh, you know, it, it's being attributed to a single person. So I, I might have to try that sometime. Talk to an actual Calvinist about what Augustine's actual beliefs were and see how that turns out. But uh, there is an objective standard, and it is Augustine in this case. And uh, we will be going to Confessions chapter 11. Have you read Confessions chapter 11? I have not, no. Okay, so this is his a famous chapter in which he says, uh, God can't talk because talking is change. And so any of God's voices within the Bible um, means that uh, it's like a creature in time that he pre-programmed. And he also states, um, this This is really famous for Augustine's little trite comments like, oh, these people say, what was God doing for creation? Oh, th these are dumb questions, you know? And uh, and and his, his other famous statement where he uh, people a lot, a lot of times pastors will quote him and they'll say stuff like, oh, Augustine said, uh, I know what time is until somebody asks me, then I don't know. Uh, so th these little cutesy comments uh, pretty much come from these chapters. So I was on YouTube and there is a discussion of dynamic omniscience with Warren McGrew, open theist and a Calvinist Turton fan. And then uh, our friend uh, Dan, who's a normal Arminian. And in the comments section, someone was accusing Warren McGrew of holding a Gnostic view of time. <laughs> okay, so here's, here's this person's comment. Ironically, this view of time, uh, Warren McGrew's open theist view, is closest to Augustine, which Warren thinks is Gnostic. They also hold to a similar Trinitarian model, looks like Warren, by his own standards, is a Neoplatonist. Now, I don't think there, there's a lot wrong with this comment here. Um, <laughs> not, it's a, there's a huge chain of events in just a couple words. Yeah, it's just, it's just like just wild <laughs> leaps of logic from one yeah. sentence to the next. I've never seen it happen so quickly. <laughs> oh, I have. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, there was a really funny thread once uh, back in the day on, uh, uh, not, not KGov, it's uh, Theology Online, in which some guy made a comment like this, and then every comment after that was mocking it. It's like, <laughs> oxygen can't exist on Earth, because elephants are creatures and creatures can fly and and if the elephants could fly they would smash all the trees therefore no oxygen exists on earth and he this guy was just mocked just relentlessly for his just wild leaps of logic and so yeah uh, augustine was a neoplatonist he had neoplatonistic values and even if he shared a view of time that's the same as war mcgrews doesn't mean everything augustine believes is gnosticism or platonism and it doesn't hold that all those views are false and there's there's no similarity between uh, Gnosticism, Platonism, and uh, historical Christianity. That doesn't hold either. And it's not, we just reject everything because it has this Platonistic uh, label. Nothing like that. The open theist claim is, if it's Platonism and not coming from the Bible, we should be very suspect of it. And Augustine is famous for saying, I'm trying to make him famous for saying this, that the Bible was absurd until read in light of Platonism. And we're kind of going to learn about that here. And so this guy is also wrong in his conception of time, Augustine's conception of time, that Augustine's conception of time is anywhere close to an open theist conception of time. And we can prove this. Uh, the guy tries to prove it. Uh, here's his comment. I'm going to scroll down. Uh, he's Jordan responds. He says his view of time could not be more distinct from Augustine's view, which is absolutely Jordan's correct. And then this guy responds to him. You are utterly wrong. 
I've listened. I've listened to Doctor Mullins state himself. Doctor Mullins is the man Warren gets his model. Doctor, it's uh, probably meant to say Doctor Mullins is the man from whom Warren gets his model. I trust Mullins over Warren. Like pure argument from authority, right? Yeah, but here's the thing. Um, I'm not convinced that Mullins has this this commenter's view of time in mind. It's more likely that this guy's just completely misunderstanding Mullins. I don't know what Mullins teaches. I haven't listened to Mullins. I don't know what he's saying. And then, in addition, um, a lot of times experts are wrong. Uh, just because you have a philosophy degree doesn't mean you know anything about wide berths of philosophical literature. Like uh, I was arguing with with these people with philosophy degrees once. I was saying, yeah. Plato was a monotheist, and they're like, oh, they're they're trying to just mock me and ridicule me. Justin Martyr, who was a Platonist, states that Plato was a monotheist. Where does he get this idea? These are these are legit Platonists who are actual pr- practitioners of Platonism saying that Plato was a monotheist. Where are they getting this idea? Why is this a mockable, laughable thing? They're mocking actual proponents of Platonism when they laugh at the idea that Plato was a monotheist. And so just because you have a degree doesn't mean you're intelligent. It doesn't mean you understand historical figures and historical figures' beliefs. Your best source of evidence is not just some random guy. It's, it's to actually just look at what the original author, the original sources, go to the primary sources and look to see what those people say. That's where we should be getting our ideas, not like third hand through some guy who we don't know exactly where their, their stuff's coming from. Does that make sense? Well, I have a degree, so I I definitely can give you the authority to say what you like. Right, and if uh, I if defer Mullins, to what you say, and I have a degree. <laughs> yeah, so um, so since Mullins is a doctorate degree and yours is a doctorate degree, they cancel we, each other out. No, we probably have to just look at go next to the years of education, which probably you would beat out Doctor Mullins when you go to years of education. That's the like the deciding factor. <laughs> how That's how years? these things. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how many years of philosophy degree it takes. I mean, the reality is that anyone who's deferring to a doctorate, anytime you point out a doctorate who doesn't agree, they're like, "Well, that, I don't, not that doctorate, the other <laughs> one that I like." It, yeah, like, it, like the whole point of doing it is not really to deal with the the arguments themselves. It's just to dismiss people out of hand, and then when you can't use their whatever hand waving dismissal, they come up with something else. It's it, it's just a dismissal. So, yeah, I, I did think that was funny, this uh, argument to authority. And we're not even sure that this authority actually agrees with the guy quoting that authority. There's no evidence of it. It's just like some random claim. And it, it's very easy to misunderstand. So Augustine gets very complicated in this chapter 11. So if you're not following very closely, you might think that Augustine thinks believes in presentism. And I think some people do read this chapter 11 and come to the idea that Augustine believes in presentism, that there's no such thing as the past, there's no such thing as, as the future, all that exists is now, and it's an ever-changing now. But that's not what he actually believes. And uh, he details that out. Some of his sections, when he's talking about man's perception, is all about what we might consider arguments for presentism, that that the past is just a memory in our mind, and the future is uh, predictions and assumptions but he's not he's not giving his metaphysical model of time at that point. He's just describing what it means to be present. And it's fair, fairly clear throughout this chapter that his perception is that to God, there is no time. God sees everything all at once and non-discursively, eternally. And so there, there's no befores and after. It's not a presentist model. But we'll go ahead and read that. This is chapter 11 of his Confessions. O Lord, since eternity is yours... You are ignorant of the things which are you ignorant of the things which I say unto you. He's saying, Lord, because you're timeless, um, do you not know what I'm going to say to you? <laughs> this is actually another kind of famous little quip that that all these uh, Calvinist preachers do. They'll say, Oh, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. Prayer is for our benefit. This this may in fact be the origin of that. Or see thou. At that time, that which comes to pass in time. He's like, do you see in time the things that are happening in time? Why therefore do I place before you so many relations of things? Why am I praying to you, God? 
not surely that you might know them through me. I'm not actually giving you information through my prayer, God, but that I may awaken my own love and that of my readers towards you. I'm praying for other people's sake. It's not for you, God. I prayed for others uh, and for myself. Uh, this is changing me, not God. And it's so all it, it's, it's almost pharisaical in, in the reaction, right? Like Jesus would say to the Pharisees have their reward for praying in public to influence the crowd, but you should pray in private to influence God secretly. Yeah, so he doesn't actually believe that prayer can, in fact, influence God, which is, yeah. uh, th which also already gives us some indication into his model of time, because influence creates change. We're going to learn that in Augustine, change equals not God. Let's uh, go scroll down just a little bit. Behold, the heaven and earth are; they proclaim that they were made, for they are changed and varied. He's saying. Everything in creation was created, and we know that they're created because there's we, we can see change in the things that are created. Whereas whatever has not been made and yet has been has nothing in it which there was not before. This is what is to be changed and varied. So he's saying that anything not created and has been can't get something new added to it or else it would be a created being. And so this is what he's attributing to God. God is in a changeless space. God is in a changeless state. He can't, he can't vary or change because that would make him equal with creation. Are you tracking so far? Oh yeah, I'm tracking. I, I think he, is he deliberately poetic? Is it the translation? Yes, uh, he is very bloviated. So he'll have a huge paragraphs repeating the exact same idea in various ways. Like, like uh, further on in this very chapter, he's like, well, uh, we don't really know years because uh, the, the years past are in the past and we don't have, have function with them. And the years future, like 100 years future, we don't have access to that. Then we can break it down to years. And years past don't have existence and years future don't have existence. Guess what? We can break it down to months. Months past don't have It's like, no, we know where you're going. Stop <laughs> it already. Uh, we get the idea. Yeah. Uh, so he, he bloviates a lot and this is the whole confessions. The format of confessions is his prayer to God. So it's, it's very, very, uh, like high and lofty. It's like, Oh God, I praise you. La 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 la. And there's, there's, there's big paragraphs of just vapid nonsense and, um, just nothingness. So let's, let's keep scrolling down and we'll say, uh, he says, our knowledge is ignorance compared to your knowledge, of course, because it's there's a qualitative difference. Uh, but how did thou make the heaven and earth? And what was the instrument of your so mighty work? For it was not as human worker fashioning body from body according to the fancy of his mind. Notice this. So um, he doesn't actually think God has discursive knowledge, that God has thoughts, that God um, creates the world, looks at the world, evaluates the world and says, this is good. He doesn't believe God creates in that sort of way. There's there's not going to be this sort of creation element, this creation sequence. To God, it's going to all be eternal and simple and unchangeable and indistinguishable from God himself. He says, in some wise, able to assign a form which it perceives in itself in its inner eye. So God didn't think about something, perceive it, and then think about it, and then create it. Scrolling forward. Thou, thou created the sense of the body by which, as by an interpreter, he may from mind unto matter convey that which he does and report to his mind what may have been done. This is all like old English stuff. That it may consult the truth, presiding over itself, whether it be well done. He says, you're creating the senses to do these things, but you yourself don't have this capacity to, to think about the things which you're doing. Scrolling forward, truly, neither in heaven nor in earth did thou make heaven and earth. So if God was on earth and made the earth, then he would be in creation and there would be change. And if he is in heaven and making heaven, uh, because heaven already has to exist. So God can't be in heaven or earth when he makes heaven and earth, which, yeah, kind of. So 
nor in air, nor in the waters, since all these belong to the heaven and earth, nor in the world did thou make the whole world, because there was no place wherein it could be made before it was made, that it might be, nor did thou hold anything in your hand wherewith to make heaven and earth. For whence could you have what you had not made whereof to make everything? This is his creation ex nihilo, that there's not pre-existing matter or material by which God can create the world, because that is the world, that is creation. He has to create out of nothing. There has to be nothingness before creation. Yeah, his, his basic argument is you can't create it. Um, you can't be inside it if you're creating it, right? Because it didn't yeah. exist in the first place. So uh, there, there's multiple steps. Whatever changes is a created thing. Um, God can't make created things from created things. God has to make those created things, and he can't make those creative things in the context of being in those things that he creates. And so this is this is an argument towards Platonistic simplicity, Platonistic uh, eternality, Platonistic immutability, Platonistic uh, God is the one above all time, space considerations, all those those types of concerns. Scrolling forward, but how did thou speak? Uh, I'll scroll back up. Therefore, you spoke and they were made, and in your word you made these things. Oh no! Now you have a problem. Do you do you, do you see the problem? If God God's words made the world, are, are you do you intuitively understand what he has to defend? He has to defend there being a period of time when it happened, right? Yeah, like uh, how how are these words? How do they function? Yeah. Are there's befores and afters and words, and so he has to it head off an action inherent in time, right? Yes, absolutely. And so this is what he comes against. He says, "But how did thou speak? And in what manner was it in which the voice came from the cloud, saying?" This is my beloved son. This is a reference to Matthew 17, 5. So he's saying, here's an example in the Bible of God talking from the cloud. For that voice was uttered and passed away. It began and ended. The syllables sounded and passed by, second after the first, third after the second. You see how he kind of bloviates on the same point? Yeah. Like, yeah. like if I were to write this, I'd be like, yeah, talking is sequential. And so it's a time-bound thing. Uh, he has like multiple, maybe, uh, Maybe it's good. Maybe it just drives home the point very clearly so that people are not going to be like, they're not well, going to walk away with the false perception necessarily. I mean, I mean, he's, he's picking up from the neoplatonists and he's also, I think he's literate in a lot of the, the poets, right? So he's trying to produce something in that form that would attract, I guess, the intelligentsia of his day by making some sort of poetic verse describing the same thing that he's trying to get across and hopefully that would have a lasting impression on people and, and of course it does have a lasting impression on people yeah people, and lots of people, people love this lots of yeah. people love it even today but even my, in english <laughs> translated from the latin yeah my sentence would be like two sentences long so maybe I, that's something i could work on and just kind of like <laughs> re-hit the same points no just say the same thing in different ways and then maybe i don't know maybe the points People yeah. be like, "Oh wow, that's that's so amazing." He says, um, "All the syllables, uh, uh, there's the last, and then there's silence after the last." Hence, it is clear and plain that the motion of a creature expressed itself, itself expressed it, itself temporal, obeying your eternal will. Because this voice was heard in time, Augustine's idea goes, is that this this is my beloved son it can't be actually God saying it because that's a time bound act. Therefore. That actually has to be a eternally created creature in in time, who's pre-programmed to say that at that exact time. And if you read Augustine's On the Trinity, this is his view about who Jesus is as well. Because for Jesus to be God, like Jesus the person who grew up and changed and talked to people, he can't actually be God. And so in his his formation of the Trinity, Jesus is just like one of these these creatures. Remember. This is this is actually saying this is God speaking. This is my beloved son, not God speaking to Augustine. This is a like a eternal parrot, a parrot creature in time. So scrolling down, if then in sounding and fleeting words thou said heaven and earth should be made, and thus made heaven and earth, there was already a corporal creature before heaven and earth by whose temporal motions that voice might take its course in time. He said, "Because words are sequential. If you used your voice to create yeah, if you the used world, the voice, then you're 
than your corporeal being, right? Yes. And so it can't be God who's actually using these words. But there is nothing corporal before heaven and earth, or if there were, certainly thou, without a transitory voice, have created that whence you would make the passing voice. So it might have been a, a, a parrot creature creating the world with God's voice, something like that. By which to say that the heaven and earth should be made. For whatsoever that were of which such a voice was made, unless it were made by you, it could not be at all. Since this is a creature sounding in time, yeah, technically you could say God said it, but it's kind of in this way where God made this parrot creature say it, and so in that way, God is actually saying it. Just like in Matthew 17, 5 that he quotes. So scrolling forward, you call us therefore to understand the word, God with you, God, which is spoken eternally, and by it are all things spoken eternally. So he's saying there's like an eternal decree. This is kind of like the Calvinist notion of an eternal, simple decree that doesn't happen in time, co-eternal with God. For what was spoken was not finished, and another spoken until all were spoken, but all things at once and forever. It's an eternal decree. It's not a decree in time. For otherwise, we would have time and change, and not true eternity, nor true immortality. <laughs> Uh, I put this in green. Since in proportion as anything is not what it was and what it is not, in that proportion does it die and arise. And so this is a philosophical statement, and I think it's true in some sense, in a poetic sense, and he's, he's writing very poetically here. The idea is uh, because we change, we, we're not who we once were. We're something new, which, yeah, yeah that, that is true in a way. A proportion that you change, in that proportion, you're not whatever you were. Like our cells completely are different than all our cells in our body. What, five or ten years ago, our whole body goes through the whole renewal cycle of all, all our cells regenerating. Yeah. So so tech, if, if you want to take Augustine's idea here, we are completely new creatures five to ten years uh, later than we were before. Like like a hundred percent different. Although he, he also seems to hold the idea of platonic forms in which there's you, you, you track changes in objects and that means those objects are created objects, but those objects have a consistent identity, but that identity has changing elements to it. And so it's poetic. And I, I think it's a very nice sentiment. That would be a great line in maybe some sci-fi movie. But I don't think it has substance. I don't think I don't think it's an accurate description of it. it it's a certain philosophical it, model, it, which it's a. I don't know. I think there is substance to that kind of argument. Actually, it, it's a it, model. It, it, it's it's a model exactly. And so it's just a question of uh, defining identity of anything. Trying yeah, to understand what the, what the form like is it forms is it schema what like what are we talking about how are we actually conceiving of any given concept right right and so maybe it would work good for like a sci-fi movie where someone transfers their consciousness to a robot and it's like but, who is that or what is that and, but this kind of thing is one of the things that you discuss in any philosophical cl class like right. you want to understand what a thing is i i think like any ontology study that you do in any philosophy class is basically asking this question at some point yeah so i i highly endorse it for rhetorical reasons and it, it sounds nice but i don't think it, it it's one of many different models yeah that we could import on the world and there's nothing saying that this is the true de facto model of the world rather than just our arbitrary standards. So he goes on to say, not anything therefore of your word gives place and comes into place again because it's truly immortal and eternal. And therefore unto the word co-eternal with you, you at once and for all and forever say that all you say and what forever you say shall be made is made. Nor do you make otherwise than by speaking. Yet all things are not made both together and everlasting which you make by speaking. Okay. So here he's hitting on a second, very, uh, very problematic element of his theology. And the question is this. So if God's words are eternal and God makes us in an eternal command that we exist, are we co-eternal with God? 
Yeah. Right. I got to kind of scroll up. What do you think his answer is? Well, I mean, you just said it right there. He just said no. He doesn't make an argument. He just says nah. <laughs> no. Oh, he's he's going to talk about this a little bit. What's his answer? What's his solution? What does he say? You, you got to guess. Uh, so the, I think so he the, just insults people, right? Uh, nope. He just says, "Oh, I don't know." <laughs> he's, he's like, oh. how, "How can this be? I don't know." <laughs> uh, well, that's, so it's at least somewhat of an integrity, you know. Like a lot of times, you ask Calvinists this, they did they don't behave that way, right? They'll belittle yeah. you, or they'll come up with something and change the rules as it goes. Yeah, James DeWessel does this in his book on the simplicity of God, in which he says that uh, the world that God creates is contingent. It has, uh, it's, it's not a necessary world, but God himself is necessary. So how does a God who's necessary with necessary eternal commands and eternal creations and eternal necessary decree, how does he decree things that are themselves contingent? It's... It's a non sequitur, and he also appeals to mystery. And that's what you got to do because, literally speaking, if God is necessary and God, all God's acts and actions are, are simple with God, they're identical to God, they're co necessary with God, then the creation that we experience is also part of that, and we are also necessary with God. They have to appeal to mystery because there's no yeah. way around it. Yeah, it's a bit funny appealing to mystery at all when you're a person who's a systematizer who who's trying to build some sort of logical, coherent system altogether and then sort of forcing it into the Bible. I mean, we've talked about this all the time, especially with the Molinists. But uh, like your your whole driving factor is this has to be because like God, it's fitting that God is this, and then here's all the consequences of it. And then as soon as you run into a contradiction, you appeal to mystery. But you created everything in the first place because of whatever necessity there is. So why not just appeal to mystery over and over again? Yeah, he'd at he, least be more consistent with what the Bible says. Oh, yeah, this is what I think God is like. And how does it relate to the Bible? Well, it's a mystery. <laughs> yeah, so uh, <laughs> let's let's uh, kind of read on. I'll skip this next highlight. And, oh, we're going to go to some purple highlights. And so my purple highlights here illustrate Augustine's Neoplatonic conception of finding truth. Of course, uh, Augustine was a good Platonist. And in the Platonistic religion, one had to purge themselves of the changeable. We already read about how the changeable was bad. The changeable means creatures. The changeable is not God. And a good Platonist needs to get rid of the changeable. So uh, we talked on the last podcast, not you and I, but the last actual podcast I did, went over Augustine's idea of what love is. Love, can't, I can't love you for your sake because loving you for your sake is putting material creatures in place of our true aspirations, which are supposed to be God. So we have to love God in you or love you for God's sake and put our highest aspirations of God because we can't put our value sets on the material changing world. The idea in Platonism is get rid of the material world, those aspects of the material which which change, which give pleasure, which, which uh, anchor you to the material world. Ascend through that, and you do that through inner meditation. You maybe go in a room and, and uh, contemplate within your mind and try to ascend and reunite with the one. And people reading Confessions, unless they understand this is what Platonism teaches, they're going to miss all these references. They're going to just say, oh, this is just kind of like poetic stuff where Augustine's just praising God. No, this is, this is not what's happening there. He's literally talking about Neoplatonic introspective pursuit of the truth through an inward enlightening, through uh, Gnostic meditation, Platonist meditation, trying to ascend the physical, like you might see like a Buddha or something like that. So here's what he says. What is that which shines through me and strikes my heart without injury and both I shudder and burn? So there's there's a light. He's, he's describing a light hitting him. I shudder in so much as I am unlike it. Remember, he's a changing creature. He's not like the light of God, which is unchanging. And I burn in so much as I am like it. Yeah, so he's he shudder as he's unlike it and burn as he's like it. His, his goal in Neoplatonism is to return to that unchanging. 
It is wisdom itself that shines through me, cleaning my cloudiness. Get rid of the material world, which again overwhelms me, fainting from it in the darkness and amount of my punishment. For my strength is brought down in need, so that I cannot endure my blessings, O Lord. He, it's, it's hard to ascend to the one. You're pulled down back to the material changing world. You, you only get brief glimpses of the divine. O Lord, who has been gracious to all my iniquities, heal also my infirmities, because you shall also redeem my life from corruption, the corrupting, changing world. And crown me with your loving kindness and mercy, and shall satisfy my desire with good things, because my youth shall be renewed like the eagles. For by hope we are saved, and through patience we await your promises. Let him that is able to hear you discoursing within. Discursing within. The inward conversations with God. He talks within confessions about seeing God in his mind's eye. And this is how he achieved truth. Introspective meditation into what the divine was. And then he would come out of his trances and write down the truths that he discovered in these trances. This, this, this does not look like biblical Christianity. It's, it's definitely, definitely Neoplatonism that we're reading here. Okay, so back... Back to his concept of time, heaven and earth. <clears throat> Lo, they are not full of their ancient ways who say to us, What was God doing before he made heaven and earth? For if, or, for if they say, he were unoccupied and did nothing, why would he not forever also and from henceforth cease from working? Okay, so what is their argument to Augustine and how do you think he's going to answer it? What was God doing before he made heaven and earth? Uh, well, yeah, their argument is, you know, if, 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 how can there be a forever before? And I guess he's just going to say that it's a nonsense question. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's get. <laughs> yeah. So if time's a created thing, then there's not going to be a before. And, right. uh, this philosophical question, he's going to say these, this is just a bad question. He says, for if any new motion has arisen in God, and a new will to form a creature which he has not ever before formed. However, God can be of a true eternity. However, can that be a true eternity where there arises a will which was not before? And so this, again, this goes back to Augustine's conception of God's knowledge. God can't decide to create something new that's never before created because creating a new thing would create change within the Godhead. So this is why, like in the, the Will Duffy-Matt Slick debate, Matt Slick refused to answer the question, can God add one raindrop to one storm? He didn't, he didn't want to answer the question because this is a problem because it requires God's knowledge, God's, uh, God's thinking, God innovating, God changing, and that destroys his model of God. So to Augustine, God cannot make new things. He's stuck in whatever eternal creation there is. He says, for the will of God is not a creature. What he's saying is, uh, if God's will was changing, remember we already talked about that, where anything that changes is a creation. And so if God's will is one of those things that are changing, then God's will itself would be a creation. For the will of God is not a creature, but before the creature, because nothing could be created unless the will of the creator were before it. The will of God, therefore, pertains to his very substance. But if anything has arisen in the substance of God, which was not before, that substance is not truly called eternal. But if it was, but if it was the eternal will of God that the creature should be, why has not the creature also from eternity? So we'll kind of scroll down. So that that creates another uh, another question. Uh, that's that co-eternal question. If if it was the eternal will of God that the creature should be, why was not the creature also from eternity? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to scroll down just a little bit. Not, he says, thou light of souls, not as yet do they understand how these things be that were, were made, which were made by you and in you. Even they endeavor to comprehend things eternal, but as yet their heart flies around in the past and future motion of things. He's saying these people fundamentally who ask this question, how can a, a creature not be eternal? They just don't understand the functioning and workings of time. Who shall hold it and fix it that it may rest a little? And what by what degrees catch the glory of that everlasting eternity? So to God, everything's eternal. There's no future, no past, uh, no real present. God's above all that. But we 
are beyond understanding that we are we're too inferior to understand the passings of time. He says, uh, see that it's incomparable and that a long time cannot become long, save from the many motions that pass by, which cannot be at the same time be instant, be prolonged, but that an eternal nothing passes away, but that the whole is present, but no time is wholly present. And let him see that all time past is forced on by the future and that all future flows from the past and that all both past and future is created and issues from that which has always been present. Who will hold the heart of man that it may stand still and see how the still standing eternity itself, neither future nor past, utters the times future and past? Are you are you understanding what he's saying here? I could break it down a little bit. Yeah, you break it down a little bit. So he, he, he's saying basically that uh, we ourselves, we can't perceive time like God perceives time. He says, uh, uh, both past and future, like the past gives rise to the present, which gives rise to the future. So there's in his mind going to be these eternal objects that are changing within time, but there's still a present and the present and in the present, the past doesn't exist and the future doesn't exist, but that present's going to be moving along this line. That's, that's always and everywhere equal to God's view. And uh, he'll, he'll kind of break this down. He talks a lot about these concepts coming up. We'll scroll down just a little bit more. But if the roving thought of anyone should wander through the images of bygone time, if anyone's thinking about the past, and wonder that you, the almighty God, the all-creating, the all-sustaining, the architect of heaven and earth, uh, for innumerable ages refrain from so great a work before you and make it, let him awake and consider that he wonders at false things. He says God can't eternally before creation be doing nothing in the past because uh, that's that's dumb. He says that's dumb because that would mean you were refraining from doing a wonderful thing. And that would be a bad thing, I guess. For hence could innumerable ages pass by by which you did not make since you're the author and creator of all ages. Or what time should those be by which were not made by you? Or how should they pass by if they had not been? Since therefore you are creator of all times, if any time was before you made heaven and earth, why is it said that you refrain from working? For that very time you made could, nor could times pass by before you made times. He thinks time is a created thing. Uh, let's let's uh, keep reading. But if before heaven and earth there was no time, why is it asked what you were doing then? For there was no then when time was not. So time is some sort of substance in Augustine's mind, and time is created. God is above these creations of time. So past, present, and future are rolled up into his conception of time. Anything past, present, and future, those are time-denoted time elements, time-denoted objects, time-denoted spaces, and those are created spaces to God. God's above all of that and should not be confused within it. As we already saw within his, um, this is my beloved son, that's not actually God talking because that involves time-bound activity. God's above these, these times. So he goes on multiple paragraphs about the same thing. Uh, so here's where people might come to the false conclusion that he's a presentist in this chapter 14 of his book 11. Neither time past nor future, but only present really is. That sounds like presentism. Presentism is the idea that the only thing that exists is now. The, the past is gone. That's not something that we can access. The future is not yet. It's, it's not something we could access. There's no material reality to future and past. All that exists is now. <clears throat> and if you're reading Augustine and you just turn to this chapter and just read this, you might come to the false conclusion that that's his metaphysical concept of how reality works. But that's, that's not what he's saying here. He says, at no time, therefore, had thou not made anything, because you have made time itself. Time's a created thing. And no times are co-eternal with you, because you remain forever. But should these continue, they would not be times. Skipping forward, what then is time? <laughs> this is, this is that, that little famous little quip. If no one asks me, I know. If I wish to explain to them who asks, I know not. Yet I say with confidence that I know that if nothing passed away, there would not be past time. And nothing were coming, there would not be future time. If nothing were, there would not be present time. So what do you think about this conception of time? Uh, he says he doesn't know what's going on, except that he's right. He's in the ride. 
Yeah, it seems like he's defining time as change. Time is change. If something didn't change, there wouldn't be time. But is is he defining it outside of himself, or is he defining it in relation to himself? He's he's defining it in relation to the present. So he, he has this uh, chapter. There's the only only a moment of present time, and he, he goes through all about uh, how the present is 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 changing, and but the past doesn't really exist, and the future is anticipated. And so it, it's all in relation to himself. He's not looking at God's perspective from these chapters, but just defining a reality in which you could say the past doesn't exist and the future's expectations, the present is real, in context of time not being a thing and all of creation being a fixed history within God's perspective. Well, it sounds like he's saying both then, isn't he? Yeah, but uh, the, the conception is that every present moment would exist for that present moment and is that present in that moment he, ma he makes a big deal about this how you can't say uh there's a long time in the past and a long time in the future because all those perceptions are meaningless there's only a present so we'll just kind of keep reading he says who is there who can say to me that there are not three times as we learn from boys and has and as we have taught boys the past the present and the future but only present. So he's saying, uh, who's it, who out there is ever going to claim that there's only the present and there's no past, and no future? Well, on me, I, I'm here. Uh, I'll claim it. He's like, all, all the young boys, all the school boys know that there is a past and there is a present and there is a future. Duh. He says, um, for where have they who have foretold future things seen these things? So if you're making predictions of the, of the future, where do you get this information? As, as if yet they are not. For that which it is cannot be seen, that and they who relate things past could not relate them as true, did they not perceive them in their mind? Which things, if they were not, they could in no way be discerned. There are therefore things both future and past. And so he's going to get into this and break this down. But his idea is that the past exists in the present in in a form of information. So when we have memories of the past, we're recalling the past, but it's not actually the past that we're accessing. We're only still in the present. And when we make predictions of the future, uh, we're just pulling from our current experiences to communicate those predictions of the future. And then he qualifies in this. This is not the type of knowledge that God uses for future events. This is not it, because to God, all these categories that he's talking here are not real categories to God who's above these concepts. God's predictions of the future is this immediate access to his eternal decrees and not like our, our guessing about the future. So I'm going to kind of scroll down. Here, here's him also saying he doesn't know. Whether there be a like cause of foretelling the future, like, uh, like let's say, uh, here's his point in context. If I have memories of the past, I could tell you about the past he says, maybe, maybe, perhaps people have memories of the future in the same way, and in that way they predict the future. They, can, you can have precognizant memories of the future. Maybe he's just throwing that out there. He says, maybe this 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 exists. I confess, my God, I don't know. In whatever manner, therefore, this secret preconception of the future things may be, nothing can be seen save what is. So the only things that we could actually foretell about the future are based on present information. And so it's not like he's wrong there, but uh, we have to understand that in context of his wider model in which all of history is, is, is a closed loop. Everything is predestined and faded. Everything must be. So I'll keep scrolling forward. We don't want to belabor that too much. That's we'll go. We are ignorant in what manner God teaches future things. You, therefore, ruler of your creatures, what is the method by which thou teaches souls those things which are future? Talking about God. For you have taught your prophets, what is that way by which thou, to whom nothing is future, does teach future things, or rather, of future things, does thou teach present? It, remember, he can't have knowledge in the same way we have knowledge of the future based on present indications of the future. His knowledge is more direct outside of that. 
For what is not of a certainty cannot be taught. So God teaches certain truths, objective facts about the future. And then I, I highlighted this in purple because this is this is his Platonism again that you might miss on a cursory reading. He says, uh, I, he, he doesn't know the answer to this, but he will be enlightened when you shall have granted it sweet light of my hidden eyes. This is just not flowerly language. This is Platonistic introspection and ascension to the well, one. Because well, most people, would, you know, they say, we'll know when we get to heaven, that sort, sort of response. So that's how they would read that, right? Yeah, it's like, you know, you, you, you would be reading these things. And every time I, I think about like a normie reading confessions, I saw a guy when I was in Qatar at, uh, uh, he was just sitting there reading confessions. And I'm like, does, does he, does he understand what he's reading when he's just reading that? He's, he's like a Catholic kid or something like that. And he's just reading through the chapters. And I always think back about that. I'm like, I don't, I have, I don't think he knows anything about what's going on. It's just, it's going to be just a superficial reading. It's like, yeah, my, uh, you will grant me this knowledge, the sweet light of my hidden eyes. That that sounds pretty nice. Yeah, that just means that he's going to enlighten us. That makes sense. That follows. That's not what he's talking about. Introspective meditation, ascent to the one. It's what what's being discussed there. Okay, scrolling down. We're right. We're in chapter twenty-three. We're kind of moving pretty fast through here. I have heard from a learned man that the motions of the sun, moon, and stars constitute time. And here's where Augustine's not wrong. So I don't know if you've ever heard this. Uh, you're talking to someone and you're talking about what is time. And they say, oh, time is uh, a watch. Uh, minutes, seconds, hours, days. Have you ever heard anyone say that? Yeah, that's one way to argue it. Yeah, yeah and so um, uh, he takes the rational position. That's absurd. Because uh, if time is days and months and years, um, what if you didn't have the sun? What if you didn't have the planets? It's not like time's going to disappear if all watches pop out of existence. That these things are just ways to measure motion. They're, they're not the time itself. The movement of a watch is not time itself. Yeah, but uh, I mean, like a lot of, like if you look at modern physics, they'll argue that motion has to happen for time to happen yeah because uh, that that's how do you how do you differentiate that what you're measuring with how you're measuring it right so um yeah so it's pretty easy in this case um yeah you could you could be somewhere where the sun doesn't exist the sun could explode time right, would go on but isn't his general point a question about like if if you're not using any sort of measurements, if there's no motion, no changes whatsoever? No, it's actually literally arguing that people are arguing time is the movement of planets. Time is watches. That's what so, he that's what he's fighting. Because he all, already kind of defined time as change. He said if there's no change, there's no time. And change is a property of created beings. And so I think he sees time. If, if time, if there's a moment where time's not changing, I don't, that would pull it out of that category of, of uh, changing or it, it pull it out of the created category and put it in the non-created category. So I think he thinks time is change. And I think he thinks created beings themselves also are change. So then is he arguing, like, obviously you're, you would argue about watches and stuff, but maybe he's arguing people who think the motions of the planets are preordained in a certain way that it, it controls people's fates and it's the universe he does argue against that that's that's typically what he means by fate when when you're dealing with these ancient authors and they talk about fate being false the fate in those days was your your life span and life events are tied to the movement of the planets and uh, that is wrong um, and we shouldn't get into that type of fatalism what they're arguing against is astrology when they're arguing against fate. And there's there's a book I got about Gnosticism and astrology in which some of the Gnostics were into astrology, and he is fighting against that. Yeah, so I wonder if he's still fighting against that, that people use astrology as an evidence for time. Yeah, that definitely could be a consideration in that passage. <clears throat> but the media context are people arguing that the planet movement is, in fact, uh, time, which... Absolutely, he's right on this point. Just because Augustine's right on a point doesn't mean that his point 
Is Gnosticism, Platonism, or false? He could be right on points and have good points. These things are possible. So scrolling back down, uh, we're, we're getting pretty far through this. So we got about uh, three more sub-chapters left in his book. I got another purple highlight. Remember, the purple highlight is his introspective meditative ascents. Uh, the one, he's talking about the one. And the one is the Platonistic name, the conception of God. God doesn't have... <laughs> Uh, Vio says, is that the Unabomber in your thumbnail? Yeah, that's Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, it could be Augustine. I don't know. It could be a picture of Augustine, coincidentally. But uh, yeah, so the one is a Platonistic conception that God is a singularity outside time and space or anything like that. This is the language used by Plato in Paramendes, and it's used by Plotinus when he's talking about God. So it's it's... It's a Platonistic terminology. And even uh, uh, Philo of Alexandria gets into calling God the One. So uh, he says, uh, the One and us, the many. He's saying uh, the Son, Son of Man, uh, Jesus, is the mediator between the One and us, the many. In many distinctions and many things, that through him I may apprehend whom I have apprehended. So in Augustine's theology... Jesus is, the purpose of Jesus is that Jesus allows a conduit between the, the realm of the intellect and the realm of the soul. In Platonism, you had to use your introspective meditation to ascend realms to get to the next level of existence. And one of the problems are, oh, how do you bridge that gap? And to Augustine, his aha moment was when he saw that Christianity provided that bridge. That is the, the figure of Jesus Christ which created a bridge and a lightning path from people to move from the realm of the material to the realm of the intellect or start ascending up to see God. That's what he's actually talking about here, uh, Jesus being the mediator. It's, it's not a priestly vision like you'd find in the Old Testament where a priest is a mediator between God and, God and man, where the priest is sacrificing on behalf of man and communicating to God and then and God communicates to the priest and he communicates to us. No, to him... It, Jesus being the mediator is being a Platonistic conduit to ascend realms. He says, in many distinctions and in many things, that through him, through Jesus, I may apprehend in whom I have been apprehended and may be reconciled or re recollected from my old days, following the one, using the Platonic term, forgetting the things that are past, because remember, uh, we need to separate ourselves from the material world. And not distracted, but drawn on, not to those things which shall be and shall pass away. We need to purge ourselves of the material world to do this ascent. But to those things which are before, not distractedly, but intently, I follow on for the prize of my heavenly calling, where I may hear the voice of your praise. He hears the inner voice when he goes into his introspective meditations. And contemplate your delights neither coming nor passing away. Remember, change is decay. Change is material world. He needs, he needs eternal truths. He needs eternal enlightenment, enlightenments that he gets through this introspective meditation. But now my years are spent in mourning, and you, O Lord, are my comfort, my Father everlasting, but I have been divided amid times, the order of which I know not, and my thoughts, even the inmost bowels of my soul, are mangled with tumultuous varieties. There, there's a lot changing in his soul. This is hurting him. This is pulling him down to the lower realms. Until I flow together unto you. Look at the word flow. This, this is a transcendence type language. Purged and molten in the fire of your love. This is just, this is just not normal praise terminology. This is introspective meditation. All right, um, going to some of his conclusions. He says, what did God do before the creation of the world? He starts summing everything up. And I will be immovable and fixed in you. He says, I will be immovable. This is, this is still on the tails of his introspective meditation, ascent to the one, getting rid of the movable, getting rid of the change, and then remerging with the immutable. 
remerging with the realm of the intellect and then ultimately with the one remerging with god becoming immutable becoming immovable getting rid of change he says i will be immovable and fixed in you in my mold your truth i will nor will i endure the questions of men he's like these these people ask me these stupid questions i'm not gonna uh, deal with those questions skipping forward what else is it is it but to say that in no time it was made let them therefore see that there could be no time without a created being and let them cease to speak of that vanity. Let them also be extended unto those things which are before, and understand that you, the eternal creator of all times, art before all times, and that no times are co-eternal with you. God, time is a created thing, so that created thing cannot be co-eternal with God, nor any creature, even if there be any creature beyond all times. Anything that is beyond time, beyond change, is in fact God by definition. He goes on, O Lord, my God, this, this is highlighted in purple, this is his ascension language, what is that secret place of your mystery? And how far thence have the consequences of my transgressions cast me? So, so notice that language again. What is bringing him down to the world? His transgressions, the things that he needs to purge so that he can reascend. Heal my eyes that I may enjoy your light. Surely if there be a mind so greatly abounding in knowledge and foreknowledge to which all things past, present, and future are known as one, a psalm is well known to me. He says, I know the psalms really a lot. So if there's a being who knows all things past, present, and future, that mind is exceedingly wonderful and very astonishing because whatever is so past and whatever has come of after ages is no more concealed from him than it is hidden from me when singing that psalm. What and how much of it has been sung from the beginning? He says, if someone knows that, I know the Psalms really well, so if people know past, present, and future, like I know the Psalms, they, they know the past, present, and future. It's, it's an exhaustive knowledge. But he says, uh, he says, can this knowledge be God's knowledge? He says, but far be it that thou, the creator of the universe, the creator of souls and bodies, far be it that you should know all things future and past, Far, far more wonderfully and far, far more mysteriously, you know them. For it's not as the feelings of one singing a known things or hearing a known song. He says, if people know the future like I know the Psalms, that's not the type of knowledge that God has. God's knowledge is above that. Through expectations of the future words and in remembrance of those that are past, varied, and senses divided, that anything that happens unto you, unchangeably, eternally, that is the truly eternal creator of minds. As then thou in the beginning knew the heaven and the earth without any change of your knowledge. So in the beginning thou made heaven and earth without any distinction of your action. And so God's knowledge needs to be non-discursive. There can't be elements. There can't be changes. There can't be before and afters. He can't process information and come to the, a conclusion. To God, time cannot be processed. All time is, and it is eternally, and it is uh, identical with God. There's not parts in God to create change. And yeah, so I was I was thinking that at first that he was going to say that it's as though he's experiencing everything at once, but it's something completely different than that. It's that because he, he, he can't experience anything. He can't it's experience. Just, it is just the, the whatever, I don't know, static existence that he is. Yeah, this is the classical perception of God, that God is impassable, that there's not outside elements that could affect God in any way. And so God can't actually love us, as Augustine writes. He can't, he can't gain benefit or value from interacting with objects outside himself. He can't have these interdependencies because those interdependencies create change. And according to his model here, anything that changes is a created being. God can't have these change elements. There's no discursive knowledge. There's no interaction. God can't interact with the world in any way. That would cause change. That would mean that God is not God. God is totally other. He's above these distinctions. He's above these relationships. We can't comprehend them, and we can't put those, those categories of existing on God. God is above those categories. And so with all, these, all this in mind, that we went over. Let's go back to our uh, original commenter on our dynamic omniscience video, in which he says that Warren's view is the same as Augustine's view of time.
Now, I'm not like a super expert on anything about Warren McGregor's beliefs on everything, but any open theistic view of God, I would say, is fairly distinct from Augustine's idea of time. Is, is that your conception as well? Yeah, I mean, if he's a presentist, yeah. But I, but I can also see why you would be confused if you're, for example, just reading the chapter or the section highlights, right? Like if you have, because the thing is he speaks poetically and if you're just sort of breezing through, maybe this is what the normie interprets when he's reading it. He doesn't know what he's reading. So he, yeah. he sees the, the top portion of the sections and he thinks, okay, well, that's what he's saying in this. And so then he reads it. He's like, I don't understand what I just read there, but that's what the summation says it is. Well, I don't think the original commenter ever read Augustine on that. He's just taking someone else's uh, account and then repeating it. So it's the question is, well, did he actually repeat accurately uh, the expert's account of things? And then the second question is, is the expert uh, reading it wrong? You know, and so that's why it's always helpful to go to the original source to look at context. Like yeah. Origin of Alexandria says some very open theistic things about the nature of reality and things coming into existence and things can't come into existence. Uh, uh, it, very open theistic things. I'll have to pull up the references. But in, if you read the context, he's not actually making an open theistic point or comment. It's actually quite opposite. He's he's uh, proposing a more, uh, more basic model just like Augustine is here. So context actually does matter. The overall point of what's being made and not cherry picking various comments because if you if you cherry pick here you could make the case you could go into argument and say augustine's a presentist and you'll have quotes and then it would take someone like five times as long to go through and explain what he actually means in context Alrighty, well that that's a pretty short and dirty uh, overview of Augustine's concept of time. Time is created thing. Time is uh, can be defined as change. We we really can't get a de facto definition. He appeals to ignorance because change is intangible. We didn't go over all those quotes because that'd be real tedious. Uh, but uh, there are futures. There are pasts. There are presents. There are things that we don't have access to in the future and in the past. But we only have access to the future and past in the present through memories and expectations. But God is above those categories and has access to future, present, and past all at once, but not in a way in which there's any dependencies or he gains anything from them. They're all part of his eternal decree, but they themselves are not eternal and necessary for reasons. He says he doesn't know how, but um, they apparently don't have to be classified as eternal and necessary, even though it logically follows from his claims. And so that is Augustine's perception of time. Do you got any uh, concluding comments? Anything you would like to add? It is interesting how close he is to like the five points of Calvinism, or at least the, not, not the five points, but the, the basic uh, understanding of timelessness and simplicity and immutability. These concepts, um, well, obviously they're all platonic, but it's interesting that he's he's very much thinking in the same way that you would talk to, say, James White about this. Yeah, like uh, Calvin himself relied heavily on Augustine. I don't think I don't think there's an author that Calvin quoted more than Augustine. He, he loved him. He quoted him. There are certain points where he said, "All I need to do is quote Augustine verbatim, and then you know my beliefs on it." Uh, he was he was a huge influence on Christianity, and uh, yeah. Augustine was literally a Calvinist before Calvin. So there's there's hardly any difference between John Calvin's Calvinism and Augustine. There are some differences. Like uh, Augustine actually believed in the spiritual ascension, and John Calvin believed in a bodily resurrection. And, right, but but usually when you say Calvinism, you mean classical theologian, right? Yeah. Yeah, so the, a lot the of finer details aren't that important. That that's what you're meaning when you're saying, "Oh, he's a he's a classical theologian." Yes. Yeah, so this is classical theism. It hasn't changed quite a lot. That's actually one thing that um, some some Neoplatonist scholars 
make the point, make the argument that there's not really these distinct Platonism, Middle Platonism, and Neoplatonism, that really they're all teaching the same thing. And certainly the Neoplatonists, and everyone will agree, that Neoplatonists thought they were teaching original Platonism and not coming up with new ideas. And there's some modern scholars that will argue that that is the fact, is, is in fact the case, that Plotinus is not teaching anything different than Plato, which I, I think is the case. There's, there's not these distinct time periods that people try to put these ideas into. And so I, the same way with Christianity, classical theism has been since Augustine and even before him. So you'll see a lot of the same type of concepts in Clement of Alexandria, who was a Platonist and wrote extensively. Ambrose, of course, was a mentor of Augustine and had a very big influence on Augustine's conversion uh, and integration of Platonism and of Christianity. Simplicanus before him. All these people were Platonists. Does that mean Platonism is timelessness? <laughs> Platonism is outside of time. <laughs> Platonism is outside of time. I think a lot of their concepts are intuitive. And yeah. so when, once you start building the system, and so everything logically follows. There will be a few distinctions, like uh, Augustine might give a power element to God that Platonism might. Because remember, in Platonism, God can't change and God can't act. And so... All power of creation has to be delegated to this, this uh, demiurge or something that comes from the one, and that's the creative element. But in Augustine, that was given to God in some incomprehensible way. God doesn't change and doesn't have relation to the world, but also is the creative element in the world and appeal to mystery. And so that, that's, that's how, how you do things. If, you just, uh, if there's no logical connection, you just appeal to mystery. But all right, thanks for joining me. Yeah, you're going to say something? Well, I, I, th I think the demiurge concept is itself funny because you're you're trying to create an intermediary, but it's not an actual intermediary. It's just another one of the created things. And so you haven't gotten yourself anywhere. Yeah, that's why the Gnostics had like uh, all sorts of various levels of demiurges. They like had like hundreds of them, <laughs> like hundreds of different layers. Maybe if, you, if, if the first one doesn't work, just try a hundred more. You just keep adding them. You just keep adding them, you'll get more layers of insulation between God and the created world, and that makes God that much higher. Man. But it is, it's a, it's a funny system. All right, any questions, comments, put that uh, down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for listening.